Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Tortoise. Hello, it's Basha here and you're listening to the Slow Newscast from Tortoise. Now, the law, particularly in this country, might seem archaic and stuck in time. And to be fair, a lot of it is. The Whigs, for example. But the truth is, it's actually closer to this big, living, evolving thing. And the more I've learned about the law in our reporting here at Tortoise, the more I've started to think of it like a neural network of all these branches and shoots which sometimes make a leap and make new connections and new pathways. And when they do that, they establish something new. And the story we're bringing you this week is about one of those leaps, about something that happened very recently which might change the way that the law approaches suicide. It's been reported by my colleague Louise Tickle, who you might remember from one of our first ever podcast series here at Tortoise called Hidden Homicides, This episode is an extension of that original investigation, asking what the legal options are when abuse is the key factor that pushes a woman to take her own life. A warning, this episode mentions suicide and abuse. I'm handing over to Louise. It's a cloudy morning in early July and my producer Claudia is on a packed commuter train heading out of London. Across the table from her sits Sophie Naftalin. She's small, wiry and smartly dressed, fizzing with energy. Sophie Naftalin is a human rights solicitor and she has a big day ahead of her. All right, so we're currently on our way to one of the last days of this inquest into the death of Kelly Sutton. And this is actually the second inquest. So although we've been here for two weeks, um, it's actually been, well, it's, it was 2017 that she died. Kelly Sutton was 30 years old when she took her own life in 2017. But for nearly six years, Kelly's family has been fighting for her death to be ruled as something other than a suicide. They're pushing for a groundbreaking legal decision for a jury to conclude that Kelly was unlawfully killed following months of domestic abuse by her boyfriend. It would mean that officially, in the eyes of the state, 
Kelly wasn't responsible for her own death. She was killed. The whole thing has just taken a very, very, very long time. And obviously you can imagine how, you know, terrible that's been for the family. You can't grieve, basically, until something's finished. You're still in that process of asking questions. We are now approaching Hatfield. OK, we're nearly there. Research shows that suicide related to domestic abuse could be a bigger killer of women than murder or manslaughter by a partner or an ex. But suicide is not generally viewed by society as something that has been caused by someone else. It's vanishingly rare for abusers to be held criminally responsible when someone has taken their own life. So, with the help of lawyers like Sophie, bereaved families are now seeking accountability elsewhere, through the coroner's courts, where inquests are held. These are not criminal or civil trials. They are official investigations into how someone died, sometimes with a jury present. And inquests don't assign blame. They don't find someone guilty, but they do describe what happened, and they can force the state to look at its role in a death. There is a lot riding on this because it's one of the first times that this has actually been tested in in, well, certainly in a coroner's court. In the case of Kelly Sutton, Sophie the solicitor and Kelly's family are pushing for an unlawful killing conclusion, not death by suicide. And if they do succeed in getting an unlawful killing conclusion, it would mean other deaths like Kelly's could be understood differently as hidden homicides, deaths caused by domestic abuse. It's a lot of pressure. I think just as a question of sanity, you have to just go, you know what, I've done everything within my power to achieve this for this family. You know, you just have to trust that they've heard it all and they'll come back with what they come back with. Just after midday, the jury retires. I'm at home at this point. I've been following Kelly's story for more than three years and I've spent over a week at the inquest. But today, my producer Claudia's there. No one's expecting the jury to come back today. But then, there's an update. Um, We've just been told that the jury are due to come back imminently, so the tension in that room is palpable and it's... It's hard to describe. I mean, you just have to try and be as kind of zen as possible. It's all happening way quicker than we expected, which means I can't get to the court in time. Everyone nervously waits for the jury to take their seats. And I wait at home while Claudia sends me updates. Every time a door opens, people are jumping and trying to check who it is. Um, I better jump back in just in case anything happens. In this episode of The Slow Newscast... Will an inquest jury of 10 men and women accept that someone who took her own life was actually killed? Just a happy little soul. (laughs) Always in the garden, always playing with animals. She's just happy. This is Pam, Kelly's mum. We're sitting in her living room in Welling Garden City with her partner Ian talking about Kelly. Every time we went round there, she was in the kitchen dancing. She always had music on and Little was dancing. And We're surrounded by photos of Kelly posing for the camera and smiling. In 2017, she was 30 and a mother of three, two girls and a boy. 
She had a big support network, but she hadn't always had an easy time. And she had three kids that she obviously deeply loved. She was training to be a beauty therapist and she, you know, and she had a complicated life. What do you mean by that? She had three children from three different partners. She had a history of domestic abuse, certainly with her first two partners. She had her first child when she was 15. She experienced lots of trauma in her life. She was never properly helped by social services. Um, She had some issues with alcohol. She was never really seen as a victim. I think she was probably seen as a problem. It meant that when she met Stephen Gaines, she was vulnerable to getting involved in this very, very abusive relationship, which was quite quick. It was only five months that they were together. But in that time, I think he really destroyed her. Kelly met Stephen Gain in March 2017. He was ex-army, 30 years old. Within weeks, he'd moved into her house. So can you describe how Kelly's life changed after she met Stephen Gain? At first, she seemed all right. It just sort of creeped up, didn't it? It wasn't, like, obvious. I don't know, she just got quieter and quieter. People noticed she wasn't wearing the makeup. And then I think she stopped wearing jewellery. She wore jewellery all the time. And I think she started covering herself up, which she never used to do. Yeah, she just changed. In the five months Kelly and Stephen Gain were together, he assaulted her and increasingly isolated and controlled her. In August 2017, following a night of arguments, Kelly took the actions that would end her life. Kelly died three days later, surrounded by her family. I haven't really, like, gone there. I haven't... I've put this wall up. And while on this side of the wall... I don't grieve. I mean, I could have sat there, I could have collapsed, I could have took to my bed, I could have cried for months on end. But I was like, no, I'm not having this. And I sat and spoke to Andrea, and we got all, Andrea interviewed all her friends. This is Andrea Dalton, the Dalton police officer. Dalton, yeah, and she was brilliant. Two detectives from a specialist team began to investigate claims of abuse made by family and friends. I mean, just in that first week, the amount of um, people that come forward and said what he'd been doing, because a lot of people knew, but they never said nothing until it was too late. I mean, they had so much evidence against him. Stephen Gain was arrested, and soon he was charged with coercive control and two counts of assault. In 2018, Stephen Gain was found guilty of all three charges. The judge explicitly said that his abuse had driven Kelly to her death. But the judge's comments didn't change what Stephen Gain was convicted for. The trial itself was about his abuse of Kelly before she died, not about how she died. Giving a single reason for suicide is uncomfortable territory for a journalist. In fact, the charity Samaritans warns us not to. Suicide is always complex, and Kelly's life was complex. But the links between domestic abuse and suicide are increasingly recognised in research, including, for the first time, in the UK government's 2022 Domestic Abuse Plan. 
Recent research published in the leading medical journal, The Lancet, showed that if you've experienced domestic abuse, you're nearly three times more likely to attempt suicide. Which is where the pioneering work of Sophie Naftalin, the solicitor, comes in. She is using the inquest process to create a legal link between domestic abuse and suicide. At an inquest, a coroner is charged with answering four questions. Who died? When they died? where they died, and, the tricky one, how they died. In some cases, like Kelly's, there might be a jury. So a lot of the work that I've been doing over the past few years concerns deaths that happen in the community, often women who have died in circumstances where their family believe that they have been failed by the state. The police may have arrived and assumed that this was a very narrow, a very simple story. This this is a woman who took her own life. There was an overdose. that, And often the investigation sort of ends there. It goes to the coroner's court. The coroner will list it for half an hour or an afternoon. And the family are left in a situation where they feel that there is so much more to the story. And that in a way, has been the work that I've been doing, which is about trying to persuade the coroner that there is a bigger story to tell. The first inquest into Kelly's death took place in 2020, three years after she died and two years after Stephen Gain was convicted for domestic abuse. The coroner determined Kelly's death was a suicide. The inquest was half a day long and Stephen Gain wasn't called as a witness. That wasn't enough for Pam, her mother, or for Sophie. I mean, you'd got the conviction. He'd been to prison for coercive control and two counts of assault. Why did you push for the second inquest? What did you want to get out of it? Because I wasn't satisfied with the suicide verdict. I knew that it was more to it than that, and I was determined to prove it. So Kelly's family embarked on a fight for a new inquest, one that would investigate the responsibility of the police in Kelly's death and the role of Stephen Gain. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com code buttery exclusions apply see site for details Kelly's second inquest starts in late June 2023 it really upset me the first day after that I just I was like no game face on and that was it after that I I was I turned into mother mode and I was like we're doing this. It's a jury inquest. Their job is to decide how Kelly died, whether she was unlawfully killed, and if police failings contributed to her death. In painful detail, we hear about Kelly's short and volatile relationship with Stephen Gain. There's evidence from friends, family and neighbours about his violence. And there's also evidence about the opportunities the police had to protect her. That includes an incident in July 2017, six weeks before her death. During an argument, Stephen Gaines strangled Kelly in front of her teenage son. The older child witnessed it and then came running to the neighbour's house, kind of, and was described in her statement as like a child in need advert, just very, very frightened. The neighbour called the police. There's body cam footage of two Hertfordshire officers attending Kelly's home. One of them is a specially trained domestic abuse response officer. Hello. Hello. How are you? Okay. Um, sure? Yeah. So if we come and have a chat? Why? Because we've been called. So they go and they attend Kelly's home and they arrive and Kelly is clearly very upset and she first of all says that no one's there. But it then becomes clear that Stephen Gain is there. Screaming, shouting, banging. That's what we've been called to. So, And obviously you're upset, so we need to come and have a chat. Who else is here with you? No one. No? No. no, no Sorry? OK. One officer takes Stephen Gain and the other officer takes Kelly and they go into separate rooms. From the glimpses we get of Kelly, she looks distressed... Her cheeks are red and blotchy. She wipes away tears as she tries to speak and her voice keeps breaking. She denies there's been an assault. He's been, he's been shot. There's been nothing more than that. Is that correct? When police attend a domestic incident, they fill in a risk assessment called a DASH. After speaking to Kelly, one of the officers writes that she is very frightened of Stephen Gain that her partner is excessively jealous and that Kelly is feeling suicidal. 
Stephen Gain, who is pacing around in the kitchen, seems edgy. But he's adamant that the officers won't get called back if they leave. Yeah, that's that's what. I don't want to go down that route, you know. Yes, it's a crack. It's a shit path. Um, it's a lot of paperwork for us. Stephen Gain basically he shares with him he's been down this path before, as in he has had domestics in the past, which he had, which he had. But the police didn't ascertain the history of. Stephen Gain and the the allegations that have been made by two previous successive partners, they also didn't look into the fact that Kelly was a repeat victim. He doesn't want to get himself in trouble again. He's done that in the past. Seems quite reasonable. Seems quite reasonable to me. Um, she's confirmed it's just a verbal argument. He's confirmed it's a verbal argument. Um, we've got a Go to Steve's location, Aviation Avenue, we need to nick one for robbery in GBH. Cool. Um, standard. The officers rate the incident as standard risk and decide no crime has occurred. It's a standard. It means there will be no arrest and no specialist domestic abuse follow-up for Kelly. They leave quickly, off to a burglary that comes through on the radio. What did you think about the evidence that those two officers gave to the inquest about why they decided this was a no-crime situation? So one of the most stark pieces of evidence that came out of the inquest was that Essam, who was this specialist officer, wasn't aware that coercive control was a crime and didn't know that it was something that you could arrest for. At Kelly's inquest, the commander in charge of domestic abuse at Hertfordshire Police identifies four key failings in the approach taken by those two officers. They didn't make house-to-house inquiries of neighbours and they didn't check that the children were safe and well. If they had, Kelly's son could have told them that he'd seen Stephen Gaines strangling his mother. One officer's body-worn camera was broken, so his interaction with Kelly wasn't recorded and couldn't be checked later by a senior officer. But perhaps most importantly, the officers failed to exercise professional curiosity and judgment. They just don't probe into why Kelly is so scared. The jury is also shown a series of messages between Kelly and Stephen Gain in the weeks following the strangling incident. In the texts, Kelly writes, Oh, there he is, the Steve I know, telling me to drown myself. And there's only so much of this I can take. She says he's controlling and protests that she's not his puppet. On the night of the 22nd of August 2017, there's a heated argument. They're still fighting in the morning when Stephen Gain goes to work. They talk on the phone at least five times in between increasingly distressed texts from Kelly. We can't know what was said, but Kelly repeatedly indicates that Stephen Gain has told her to kill herself. At 7.49am, she writes to him, Hope you feel bad for this, because this is your fault. You told me to do everyone a favour, so that's what I shall do. Hope your life is better without me. Then, at 7.50am, You hurt me inside so much, you don't even know. It's Kelly's last text. When she stops answering Stephen Gaines' calls, he leaves work and drives home. He finds Kelly unconscious 
and calls the police. To try and establish what's, what's happened. I left for work at, at, at 10 to 7. Yeah. And then I you spoke to her. Spoke to her at 8. Last time I spoke to her was at 8, I yeah. think. What did she say? Did... She was just, she was upset. She was, she was just angry. OK. And then I tried calling her a few times and the phone was off. At some point that morning, before police take her belongings into evidence, it's believed he deletes dozens of messages from Kelly's phone. After Kelly dies, that specialist domestic abuse team begins their investigation into Stephen Gain. One of his old army friends informs them that Stephen Gain admitted to headbutting Kelly, causing a gash in her scalp. And he agrees to meet up with Stephen Gain and wear a wire. Claudia, my producer, has the transcript. So the wiretap conversation between Stephen Gain and his army friend was read out in court. And in it, Stephen Gain, he jokes about Kelly's death. According to the transcript, he laughs when he tells his friend she's dead. When his friend asks who, Stephen Gain goes on to say she's brown bread, before eventually explaining that he's talking about Kelly. And in the conversation, he actually seems more concerned about the impact the police investigation is having on his own life than with Kelly's death. He complains in detail to his friend that because of police inquiries, he says that his dream car went down the pan and that his three-bedroomed house with a barbecue area has gone out the window and he blames it all on Kelly and what he calls her selfish actions. When Stephen Gain was convicted of coercive control and two counts of assault in 2018, he was sentenced to four years and three months in prison. He's out now, and to everyone's surprise, he turns up at Kelly's inquest to give evidence. It is almost impossible to hold someone criminally responsible when another person takes their own life. And in many ways, that makes sense. There are important and obvious reasons why the legal and moral test for prosecution is incredibly rigorous. I think there is an element with suicide that it's incredibly unknowable. Why someone takes their own life, there's always going to be a multiplicity of reasons. It's simplistic, I think to say it's one reason. It's it, it, it's obviously going to be more than that. And also, it you know, I think it's not straightforward in terms of criminal liability for someone. You know, that's not a straightforward question. There are huge moral issues inherent. It's by no means straightforward. In fact, there has been just one manslaughter conviction for a domestic abuser following their victim's suicide. It was in 2017 and the perpetrator pleaded guilty. And so pioneering lawyers like Sophie Naftalin have landed on inquests as a powerful tool for accountability rather than criminal liability. Since 2019, she has worked on six cases like Kelly's. Each one feels like it's pushing the dial. But no inquest has yet returned a conclusion of unlawful killing. Which brings us back to that courtroom in Hatfield. It's Tuesday the 4th of July, and Stephen Gain is on the stand. He's wearing a tight black T-shirt, black jeans, and he's emotionless. 
He's turned up to court with a young woman. She looks pale and stares straight ahead while he's questioned. We find out later that she's been warned by police about Stephen Gaines' history of domestic abuse. Every time a barrister asks him a question about his role in Kelly's death, the coroner has to warn him of his right not to incriminate himself. And it creates such a bizarre back and forth. A barrister asks a question, the coroner warns the witness, Stephen Gain declines to answer. He refuses to say whether he told Kelly to harm herself, what steps he took after finding her unconscious, or whether he deleted any text messages. And when asked if he has anything to say to Kelly's family, he pauses, then shakes his head. I wish not to answer that question, he says. How did you feel during that second inquest, listening to Stephen Gaines' evidence? <laughs> it was laughable. I just sat there and I was like, I really seriously wanted I was literally right next to him. And I felt like I just turned around and say, you, you're having a laugh. What are you saying? He's like, he just hasn't changed. After giving his evidence, Stephen Gain exits the courthouse through the fire doors, dashes to his car, and we watch as he drives away. After nearly two weeks, the inquest jury retires. They need to decide how Kelly died. Unlawful killing, suicide or accidental death. You're so hopeful. It's kind of like there's something almost like religious about this kind of experience of being in this courtroom. It's very ritualised, you know, it's sort of and you're waiting for this outcome. You're waiting for this like deliverance. You know, you have to just... Hold it back. Three hours of deliberation later, the jury walks back into the courtroom. Pam and her partner Ian hold hands. The forewoman stands. When the, when the woman stood up to read out the verdict, this beam of light yes. came through the that. window. Yes. Yeah. Actually lit mm. the person up. When she read out unlawful killing, it was this kind of very chilling, just very kind of emotional moment. I found it very moving. And it was so, like, spiritual, and it was, it was like, ooh. And I was like, yeah, she's here. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was like amazing. She, she gave, she approved of the verdict sort of thing. It was like a <laughs> holy moment. <laughs> the jury concludes that Kelly was unlawfully killed. They say that she took her own life after being subjected to months of coercive, controlling behaviour and domestic abuse by her then-partner. And they conclude that police failures on that day in July 2017 may have contributed to her death. And we all just looked at each other, didn't we? Celebrating. It's a groundbreaking legal win. And it means Kelly's death certificate will not say suicide. The responsibility for her death has been taken out of her hands. In the eyes of the state, she was killed. How do you feel? Just really vindicated and really just so happy for the family um, that they have been recognised and they've been vindicated and that they've got this amazing outcome that will hopefully 
allow them to start to grieve. It's a symbol that this is possible, that it's not just a sort of theoretical legal construct, that, um, that if juries are presented with the evidence, they can make findings that abuse causes women, people, to take their own lives. Um, so hopefully it will encourage the police to properly investigate these cases. It will give them um, the confidence that this kind of investigation is possible. On the steps outside the courthouse, Sophie Naftalin makes a statement on behalf of the family. Kelly was a much-loved mother, daughter, sister, auntie and friend. It would have been Kelly's 36th birthday tomorrow and she had everything to live for. Her family miss her every day and nothing will bring her back. The battle, she says, isn't over. We have fought now for many years for this inquest and for this unlawful killing conclusion. The family now call on the CPS to reconsider this case and to charge Stephen Gain with unlawful act manslaughter so he can also be held accountable in the criminal courts. High-profile, landmark cases like Kelly's inquest drag society into a new reality or perhaps a new understanding of an old, old reality. For the first time, a direct legal link has been created between domestic abuse, suicide and unlawful killing in a coroner's court. The jury's conclusion has stretched the boundaries of what is conceivable for other coroners to decide about similar deaths. It opens up new avenues for families, like Kelly's, to demand answers about what happened to their loved ones. And Claudia and I discover that, in one of those rare, rare cases, Stephen Gain could now realistically be investigated on suspicion of manslaughter. But it has all taken the most enormous fight. I don't think anybody would listen to me. I don't think anybody would take notice of what I've got to say. Because I've heard from other people, they don't. Other families have said, no, this isn't right, it's not suicide. And the police officers haven't listened to them. But it's also about creating impactful change in the hope that these findings will somehow trickle down, you know, predominantly to frontline police officers to know that their role in policing domestic abuse and turning up to what might seem to be a very innocuous event actually is really important. Inquests force the agencies involved to turn up to court and account for themselves, conduct time-consuming internal reviews, spend money on lawyers, answer uncomfortable questions. In a statement, Detective Chief Superintendent Amanda Bell, who heads up Hertfordshire Police's Safeguarding Command, said Kelly's death was a tragedy and that the force accepted the findings of the jury inquest. It has set out to improve the way it supports victims. We approached Stephen Gain for comment during the inquest, but he declined to speak to us. We attempted to contact him again afterwards. After a harrowing six years, Pam and Ian and the rest of Kelly's family can grieve now. We had a little a path outside her door and she'd pick every single snail up that was on the, on the path and she'd put them on the grass or on a plant. And I said, what are you doing? Oh, I don't want them to get trod on. 
She'd even phone me at two o'clock in the morning to move a spider out from her house. So she would actually love all of this, what's going on. If she could save someone, she would. Kelly's case has shifted the dial. Pam and Ian say it's something that she'd be proud of. Thank you for listening to this slow newscast. If you need someone to speak to after hearing this episode, you can call Samaritans on 116 123. This episode was reported by me, Louise Tickle, and Claudia Williams, who also produced it. The editor was Basha Cummings. Sound design by Tom Birchall. If you'd like to hear more of my reporting about domestic abuse and women whose deaths go unrecognised and uninvestigated by the authorities, you can listen to my four-part series, Hidden Homicides, on the Tortoise app or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Hidden Homicides. Thank you. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. How do you solve a crime in reverse when you believe that someone was murdered but have no clue who the victim was? We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill, if it's possible. How are we going to do that? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.